the values in virtually every single chapter that one has with which we are going to ultimately impact upon the world. And of course, uh, our critical variable is that the Tanakh is an educational tool by which we can impact upon the world. Our premise is that the word impacts much more so than the sword itself. Islam, Christianity had conquered the world by virtue of the sword. We are trying to impact, influence the, wor- the world by virtue of the word. The word has the power to affect change. And of course, one can take positive as well as negative models of the power of the word. If one were to think of the greatest speaker in the 20th century, one might say Hitler, who mesmerized crowds with his ability to relate, with his ability to impact upon them. You've all seen the movies where you have that many people saying, Wow! I say, What did he say? It's astounding. But somehow he sensed intuitively the right note to hit, whether it was scapegoating the Jews, whether it was relying on the economic disaster with which the Versailles Treaty put Germany in, he was able to hit that right note which energized that crowd to follow the Nazi program. Astounding how he was able to do that. On the other side of that coin, you might say Kennedy. Kennedy's program of vigor in the 1960s, the early 1960s, of course, to the mesmerized and captured the hearts of the youth of our country. Amazing how he spoke, and people then want to go beyond and volunteer for the youth corps and be involved in social change. He empowered the youth, ironically enough, to do what? Beyond that, correct, beyond that. Eventually, he empowered the youth so much that we ended up protesting the war in Vietnam and stopping the war in Vietnam because of his empowering of the youth. His whole portrayal of youth as positive, vigorously, as opposed to the more staid Eisenhower of the 50s, is what empowered eight, nine, ten years later for the youth to react to what they were not happy with, namely the war in Vietnam. So the word has a great deal of power. And of course, we are going to see, study, how the written word actually is going to affect change. We have seen how powerful speakers, the biblical powerful speakers, also are going to change. Now, what can next raise the next question? What influences more, we asked? A philosophical idea, an abstract notion, or a narrative or story? So the answer obviously is a narrative or story impacts much more than the more profound philosophical idea. Why is that? Remember the story. Good. Has legitimacy, at least until the computer age, anyway. Things, anything printed, whether it was true or not, was was taken. Okay, has, but but you might write down the abstract idea also. It's not only the written nature of that idea or story; it's that the story captures another part of your heart and soul. Also, you could put a lot of different, a lot of information into a story. Different, right? Different messages at the same. It's much time. more. It's much harder to write a story. You remember it. You remember it. It's impactful. It captures your imagination. The more graphically that I could describe to you whatever idea I want to describe to you, the more I can impact upon you. Often enough, when you teach your children, we made this point, you want to teach them not abstractions, stealing is wrong, honesty is the best policy. 
Well, that's only an abstraction. What you really want from them to remember and to be motivated is a narrative, is a story. And the most impactful <coughs> stories are stories that you tell about yourselves. Children are enormously interested in your personal stories. And you, obviously you've all tried this as parents. No. <laughs> yet, not yet. But you will try this as a parent. And you will find... Sorry? They emulate. Yeah, they want to emulate. Yeah, there's something natural. There's natural connection. And they remember these stories for years and years and decades to come. In a very important book called Why Janet Has No Right From Wrong which was a play on the 60's book, Why Johnny Can't Read, Why Johnny Can't Write. And a professor at BC wrote a book on Why Johnny's No Right From Wrong, which is Johnny's the catch-all term for every American kid. Why is he burning down buildings? Why is he exploding bombs? Why is he doing these kinds of things? And he attributes it in one of his chapters because the stories that we tell our kids now via the television are much more violent than what in the 50's and 60's we grew up with. We grew up with Father Knows Best. My three sons, um, Ozzie and Harriet. He's growing up with, look at television. And those television programs impact and shape his moral value system. So it's not surprising that some of our kids are growing up the way they're growing up, certainly in broader America. So the story is very impactful. Our Tanakh contains narrative. But embedded in those narratives are the ideas, ideals, and values that we want to impact upon the world. So that's what we have to do. What are some examples of that? Taylor Menokin. Yeshit Aleph Kavav. Every human being is created in divine image. Another example. So the Kamashpah. That our primary Jewish value is justice and righteousness. That we had seen in Yeshit Yud He. The idea, let's say, for example, of, to, to go a little bit further along this, this uh, pathway, of progress. Torah believes in a linear reading of history as opposed to a cyclical ever repeating cycle where nothing can change wherever you are whatever you are is what you always will be that stops progress our view is that you could be born a slave and that it could become somebody could come along and do what and liberate you from your slavery that's perfectly legitimate we say so our view in Tanakh of a linear view of history is very critical in order to, for us to propose our ideas, ideas and values to the world self. Now, of course, we're going to get into med, much more detail as to what these ideas, ideals and values are all about as we go along. Good. Then we raise the question, are we succeeding at impact upon the world? And of course, we said that yes. Abraham began 4,000 years ago with one out of 10 million people with this idea of Siddhakavish Pat that we had seen in Bereshit Yudhet. And today, this very normative value that to pursue justice and righteousness is part and parcel of a civilized person's outlook has impacted upon 1.2 billion Muslims were not affected by inappropriate politics and 1.8 billion Christians, which is extraordinary. Also, they had their periods when they didn't get the story straight. We know that. Christianity during the Middle Ages didn't get a story straight. They burned Jews. That was a serious problem. But nowadays, it doesn't happen. They went to their growing stage, and now we would say that there are many Christians that are civilized human beings. Maybe you say most Christians are civilized human beings. Maybe most religious Christians are civilized human beings. Good people. Decent people. Because they took our principles, adopted them, put them into practice, and were all the better off for it. Islam now is going through a very difficult, horrifying stage. All the more so at this point in time. 
But again, there was a period of time early on when Islam was a very civilizing influence on pagan nations, and they did well by that. They did a good job by that. Islam brought certain good values to the world and treated its Jews wonderfully well when the Jews abided by a few certain rules. Islam was good. Our grandparents will all tell you that in Halab, they had their best friends were Muslims. And the Muslims went to the rabbis to adjudicate their cases. So Islam did go through a wonderful period of time, although now we have to admit it's a very difficult time for Islam. They're not getting it straight. Nevertheless, we will assert that between the 1.8 billion Christians and the 1.2 billion Muslims, that's 3 billion people, which is half of humanity. So we, through our daughter religions of Christianity and Islam, have impacted upon 50% of the world in only 4,000 years. It's an extraordinary accomplishment that we've done. Right? So we made that point as well. Now, we then went on to make the point, how do we, in fact, impact upon people? So I propose to everybody a threefold model of impact. Of course, there are many, and mine are very crude examples. But I just want to get the point across, how one impacts upon people. And we said that, first of all, you could impact upon people by, as parents by having children. Simply by becoming perfect educators as parents. If you recall the model that I used, here's two people, and they have four kids, and they're educators. If they're educators, that means they know how to educate, which is they know how to teach their kids so they won't forget. They will use graphic descriptions. They will use perfect educational pedagogical techniques in order to impact upon their children. So the children ultimately are perfect. It's a theoretical, hypothetical model. We understand that. But we all want to approximate this model of perfection to whatever degree that we can. And that we want to learn how to be great teachers using all kinds of the most sophisticated pedagogical techniques and theories in order to impact upon these kids. And every child needs a different theory, different, still different stages of growth. needs a different way of impact upon that child. And they all go to have four children, let's say, which is conservative, right? And four children this way. A good example that you might want to say is the Hasidic world. Hasidic world is not losing its kids to drugs and to all kinds of other immoralities. They are basically keeping their kids. That's questionable, Rabbi. Who says? My, um, I would say that my knowledge of it through my wife who is Hasidic and her whole family and my cursory I would say, I blink view of it, meaning just blinking through the community. I don't know, I have done a sociological survey. But to say that 90% of them are keeping their kids on the right track, I don't think it's an exaggeration. Yes, there are definitely drug problems and all kinds of other issues. That's absolutely true. However, to say that they keep guys, if you have seen the movie of People Apart, the Hasidic community in America, which is an objective portrayal of them, that's what it comes through. It's a great movie, it's very nice, and I watched it critically. And the people who had done it were critical people. And I think from that point of view, they said that, yeah, most of their kids are brainwashed in order to remain in the fold. So I think 90% of them would actually have done that. So, and they're having 9 10 kids. If you think of the post-World War II Hasidic population in 47, so what they have now, they've increased, multiplied, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, spreading out, they're doing it. But they have the right pedagogy. And you look at the movie, you see, what are they doing? At three years old, at four years old, five years old, 
swapping. I had a swapping. And we go, each one of these people have four kids. So you start out with four, then you had 16, then you had 64, then you had 128, then you had 600, then you had 2400. Every generation. Then you had 2400 times four, then you had 10,000. Then you had 10,000 times four, 40,000. So then you had 160,000. Ideal, obviously people die in this model. So obviously it's not a perfect model. But people, more people have been born than, born than the four that I'm only counting over here. So by the end of 10 generations, you reach critical mass of impact of you end up with 160,000 and you have a quarter of a million people that's critical mass to impact all who have the most perfect values that's our key over here all who have a concern with impacting upon others that's the first model of impact right so this is what you had said second of all we had said the concentric theory where you start with your most intimate group where there is good communication, good understanding, you impact on these people. Let's say your immediate family. And then you impact with the right values. You have to know these values well. Ideas, ideals, and values which are all interrelated. Right? And then we impact on our extended family. And let's say, for example, you have an aunt and an uncle who are not doing well together socially. Marital discord. So if you had these values really on target, and you knew how to communicate them. It's not only intellectual, it's emotional. The example that I use is that if Vitamin Now and somebody's sister is intermarrying, what are you going to do? And you're the only person that has a relationship with that person in order to impact. So you have to know exactly what you're going to say, think it through, you have to know how to describe the situation, you have to pull every single emotional, psychological string that you do to stop this terrible disaster from happening. You have to speak. There are good speakers and there are bad speakers. If you're a bad speaker, you're not going to impact very well. If you're a good speaker, you're going to be able to get it done and stop this disastrous situation happening. But you have to learn the fine art of rhetoric. Every parent has to become this great pedagogue, knowing how to engage the attention, knowing how to use their hands when they speak. All this is part and parcel of pedagogic technique. It's a long and involved discipline that some people are naturally good at and some people are not very good at. Voice modulation. You're teaching your kids. There's nothing more precious to you than your kids. So you want to become great teachers to impact upon them with the values that you consider to be important. So if you have your aunt and uncle over here who are having a with discord and you're the person that knows how to do it, you have to hone your techniques, your pedagogic skills to impact upon this extended process and achieve shalom bite in that context. That's what you want to do. And then you may have, you may be the president of a synagogue, of a community center. And you're going to implement programs in your community center, in your synagogue, in your broader community, that is going to impact on the broadest levels. You started right here and you ended up with all the way out there with your right values. So the head of your community center, the president of your synagogue, has to be a person that is a model to others. I was telling Betuanai people that your rabbi, that you choose, whoever you choose, has to be the person that you want your child to be exactly like. His job is to impact. His job is to how to speak well, be pedagogically adept, knowing how to communicate his message. Now, if you don't like that person, whatever his may be, you don't like his values, that's obvious. He steals, I don't think you want him as your rabbi. Adultery, murdered his wife, yeah, well, that. <laughs> if you murder his wife, don't hire him. 
That's New Jersey, right? I think we sold out. We sold out in New Jersey. It's right across from the border. It's right close. Yeah, we got our files in New Jersey. You're right. So if you have any of these issues, then don't hire that person. But if he's not pedagogically adept, how is he going to communicate that, me- that message? We, there's another synagogue in Deal. I'll tell you where it is. Who's the rabbi there? And they came to me with the question, what are I, rabbi? What's about this present rabbi? He has poor people skills. I said, well, that's pretty obvious to me. There's poor people skills. Why well, are you going to be a rabbi? He's a great Tamil Hakan. He's brilliant. This is an about the Syrian world, in case those of you who are trying to guess something. That's an Azarov. So I, I said, but I don't care how much he knows, he doesn't have to communicate it. On whatever level. If he's not pleasant in the way he conducts himself publicly. You can't hire him as a rabbi. An obvious point. And there are a checklist of what you may want in your rabbi. I said, look, here's a checklist. I gave Bitchard a checklist of six of the most important things I think a rabbi has to have. After 20 years on the job. <laughs> you keep putting it, you pointing at him, you keep putting him on the spot. What's in the spot? I'm thinking very highly of that young man over there. So oh. I can, I can put. I'm not a candidate. No, you're not going to be drafted, baby. Not for this class right now. But I'd be happy to share this with you. I think it's very important to know about that. So, giving them, I gave them what I thought was most important in terms of a rabbi. And people school is one of them. Public speaking is another one. Grief counseling is another one. Those are critically important skills. If you're a rabbi and your job is to grief counsel or to save a marriage or stop somebody from converting or intermarrying or whatever case may be, those are pedagogic skills. Doesn't matter how, how smart you are, how much demand you know, that's what the job of the rabbi is nowadays. You spend most of your day with people on the phone or in person. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. So ultimately, the head of your community on a presidential level, rabbinic level, has to impact all out here. And then we had said that random acts of kindness, the third was, was R-A-K, random acts of kindness can in fact impact on a broader scale. And we described all about that. Good. What are some of the contemporary issues that we, we had impacted? I had suggested to you, for example, food stamps. Food stamps that we think is part of civilized society is part of Pe'ah Leket Shekha. We said that. The issue, let's say, for example, that debts are canceled in a bankruptcy. That's part of the Shinata Shemitah types of legislation. So many of the biblical ideas that we have in our Tanakh have been implemented in modern society, which is extraordinary. It's amazing. Nobody appreciates it, nobody realizes that, but it's all there. Based on the notion that a human being is still in Okim, his divine image, and therefore he has a right to start a lobby if he went bankrupt. He has a right to get food. Thank you. He has a right to have food. There are food stamps. Is it logical? No. I made my money. Why should I feed this person who's a lazy guy? See? Why should I feed him? I have to feed him. There was a great social theorist in the 19th century called um, William Sumner who was a practitioner of social Darwinism. What does that mean, social Darwinism? Survival of the fittest economically and socially. If you're not capable of making it, let that person fall by the wayside, fall through the cracks. Social Darwinism. He had taken it from evolutionary Darwinism. But this applies to society as well. Let that poor schlepper schlep away. We don't need that person over here. We don't want to put about society. Let him fall through it because we shouldn't care about it. So that's obviously not a Torah idea. Torah, Torah does not believe those other Torah believes, of course, in taking care of that person. Good. So, please, again. In your 
opinion quickly. Yeah. Would you say what's going on, what President Bush is doing in Iraq today is an extension of Torah values? Absolutely. You should have heard last Shabbat's he speech. He said it is. He said it is really. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I want to thank um, Eli Zakai for faxing to me last Sunday's Times article by Thomas Friedman who spoke about Tikkun Olam. He quoted Tikkun Olam. He said, this Kabbalistic notion. He got it all messed up. Not he said, no, he's still, no, there is a doctrine of Shavirat Kelim. The vessels were broken at creation and there's a, a, an, an attempt to fix those vessels. Mm-hmm. It's a Kabbalistic notion. He got it all messed up. But the notion of Tikkun Olam, Thomas Friedman quoted his article. So that, that Blair from England is a practitioner of Shikun Olam and Bush is not able to articulate that idea on a global level. Blair is a conscious? Yes. They talk about broader environmental in one example, broader global issues, whereas Bush comes across as more narrowly focused. So it's an interesting idea. It's a nice article to read. It wasn't great, but it was a nice article just in terms of Shikun Olam. See, you to me, dear Rabbi, your ideas are getting through, keep it up. So Bush is one of our uh, very extended circles of, uh, of influence. So the answer is, of course, yeah, last Shabbat, or two weeks ago, when I said war is imminent, a week before last, and I gave a halakhic analysis of why we're obligated to support this war, halakhically. Quoting biblical, Amalek context sources, Gemarot, as to Mechamed Mitzvah, when we're obligated to engage in battle, Mechamed Mitzvah, Mechamed and then going to the Rambam, who talks about Amalek as an evil ideology, and saying that Saddam Hussein is an evil ideologist, and therefore has to be destroyed. So I very strongly came out saying that we have to support this any, endeavor. Any chance I could get printed, written up, and, and emailed around that sermon? No. No chance? Get the copy on the MP3 or something. That does... Shabbat? Shabbat? That's a lot of feature, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's one of these magical things that does everything. So I imagine quantum mechanics. That's what I mean. That's why. It's uncertain about what it really does. It's uncertain, right? No, I don't write my. It's not over now. I mean, it, it, it's no. So I don't think that's. Um, it's hard. I, I just couldn't. There's only one person that can answer. Yeah, <laughs> and I can't. I'm not trying to do it, but okay. Now I'll think about it. You want to do that? It sounds worthy. Yeah, I'm gonna see if I have the time. Okay, next. Now take out... You don't have them. Pass these around. Well, now we want to study some of the ideas, ideals, and values that we were speaking about. 25 minutes. Sorry? 25 minutes, sir. I know, I feel bad. You're actually right about that. To some degree, review is part of the good pedagogical technique. Although you're actually right that we don't want to, we don't want to say too much over it. You're right. Belinda came the first time, so... Just for Linda's sake, and she deserves it. Oh, thank you, Rabbi. So you, your, it's your argument between you two, not me. So. Okay, now you have in front of you the books of the Bible. Including these books of the Bible are all the ideas, ideas, and values that we actually need to change the world. Five books of Moses keep separately. Then we have 19 books of the prophets. Spoke about those books as well. And we also want to be aware that, of course, there are times when we are not successful, when the ideas, ideas, and values of these books are not implemented in society, such as the Nazi period. 16 million people of Nazi Germany, although only 1 million were part of the Nazi, move, the Nazi party, but 16 million knew about this genocidal craziness of Hitler and did nothing. That's a failure of our values. We didn't impact upon them. But in Germany, for 
500 years, 800 years, and we didn't impact sufficiently upon them to understand human dignity. That's astounding. Sound failure. We didn't impact upon them. In this case, we paid a very serious price for not impacting upon them. We should have. Why were there only 5,000 Polish people and Jews that lived against in Poland for 500 to 800 years? How come only 5,000 of those multiple millions of people only saved Jews? Why only 5,000? They were my Jewish neighbors. I was next door to a guy for 30, 40, 50 years, and they didn't help me. Something's wrong over here. What, what, what didn't go on over here? Why didn't I impact? And by implication, are you impacting upon your non-Jewish neighbors right now in order to make sure that if God forbid you have the need for it down the road, they will have the right death and respond and react accordingly? Are we doing that? Are we impacting upon the broader non-Jewish community? politically, socially, and coming down to individually. I, I would want my priest next door to be my best friend for pragmatic as well as for appropriate humanitarian reasons. Okay, that's later on. So, there are periods where our ideas, ideas and values that are contained in these books of the Bible are not effectively communicated even to those who are next door to us. So, we are succeeding sometimes, other times not. Not every Jew... <coughs> Not every Jew, of course, is a good, neither practitioner of these ideas, ideas and values, nor is he, every Jew, is a good communicator, and some Jews, believe it or not, don't entertain them whatsoever. We had spoken last time about the selective process. Selective meaning those Jews who actually embody, absorb, implement these ideas, ideas and values, they're the ones that are going to succeed in maintaining them, continuing with them, on, 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 and there are those Jews who typically just fall by the wayside. We made that point as well. Call the selective process. We want to be aware of that. Good. So now, let's look at our books. This is called Tanah. Torah Nidim Kitovim. You know that. Torah, five books. Nidim, 19 books, and the books of the writings. These are all very different in that the first two categories are from God to the Jewish people. So the direction of the arrow goes this way. Ketuvim is exactly the opposite. It's human beings and their response to the divine encounter. So it's exactly the opposite movement. First two go from God to the Jewish people, and the third group, Ketuvim, goes from the Jewish people up to God. With one message or another, whatever it may be. One should be aware of that. Okay? Now, again, the five books are the most intense books of our Titanach, which contains the most powerful ideas, ideas, and values. Good. So the other prophetic books, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I'll see how well you do it. Then I'll see how I'm going to hire you. You already did, and I fixed your teeth, so. <laughs> I have a promise, matter of fact. I will talk to you about that. We had said that I want to divide, to make it uh, a little easier to understand these books, that the prophetic books are divided into first, let's say, different categories. First four books, Nivim Nishonim, from book 5 to 19, Nivim Aharonim. And we discussed as well what the differences are between, it's one difference between these two categories. First four are historical and social, the last five through nineteen are the rabbinic sermons, the rabbinic sermons that the prophets gave which reflect upon the social historical events taking place mainly in book four. 
Book of Kings. We discussed all of that. I can't repeat it. Because you're coming after me. you. Now, next. No, no, you're right. You're right. Next. We then spoke about the, each of these prophetic works one should be able to recognize. Amos. He's about social justice. About luxuriating within society when people are still suffering, going hungry. You dare have a $100,000 wedding when there's a poor man outside your door? This is what Amos would speak about. You dare live in a million dollar home? Today that's understand, very common. You dare live in a multi-million dollar home? And the people that don't have roofs over their heads? Amos is very upset about that. He's not all that concerned about idolatry. That's not his issue. His issue is social justice, judicial corruption, and inappropriate luxuriating when there are people who need your help. That's Amos. We spoke about he as the first literary prophet. Why that is the case? We'll review that. We spoke about each of these Nevi'im. Yoel, what is he about? Joel, what is he about? Incident versus event. Obadiah, about brotherly hatred. Edom and Yaakov. Yonah, we know. Nimzeh. Pagan world can change. The pagan world can change. Is what Yonah is all about. And then we said that 14, 15, and 16 are part and parcel of the attack on the Assyrians, on the theological attack on the Assyrians, Ashur, whereas Svanya predicts it in 6.15, Habakkuk complains about it, Nahum describes it. Nahum describes the destruction of those, the capital city of the Assyrians, and Habakkuk complains to God about it, which we spoke about last week. And finally, 17, 18, and 19, Zechariah, and Haggai are all post-exilic prophets who are after the Horban, after destruction, from around 520 to about 450, 460, 450, before the Common Era. And their issues are no longer issues of idolatry, but rather, how do we build Ben Amikdash II? That's your prophetic list. Yeah. Uh, did I hear you right? You said theological attacks on, yeah. on uh, Ashur? Yeah. Can you just explain like in one sentence, two sentences? Yeah. Permission to go there? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's appropriate. You You're right. No, it's very appropriate. I'm glad you said it, because I could get carried away sometimes. Um, yes. It's Zephania complaining from God's point of view, what's wrong with Assyria? What's wrong with Ashur? Their evil, not their idolatry, but their evil is so manifest. Their indiscriminate killing. Their scorched earth policy is what Sifania speaks about, and therefore they have to be destroyed. Based on the Sodom Amorah principle, which God reveals to Abraham 1500 years earlier than that, which is the natural law of morality. The natural morality says, Het beyond shore. Het, you, you transgress. That has to, inevitably, to lead to punishment. There has to be a punishment. There is sin, it has to lead to punishment. The Nazis have to be punished. There's no thousand year right here. See, the year right, or two year right, three year right, has to be destroyed, is what the prophets will teach. So too with regard to Assyria. And then Nahum describes it, this punishment, and then Habakkuk complains about it, because God is not working. Makes no sense to me, God, why are you destroying Assyria and allowing Babel, who is worse, to take the place of Assyria? Right? Worse in other ways, but not in the, in the humanitarian ways. Yeah, but from, from Habakkuk's point of view, God, you now do anything and everything. So simply get it straight. 
get astray. And God says a time, and God in Tedek Bed, which we read, we'll go over, Tedek Bed says that you only see part of the picture. There's a broader picture out there. And that broader picture is a kif, an end of days, a messianic end of days. And he says to him, wait for this end of days. It's going to be. I promise it's going to be, God says. But it has to be with your help, and you're doing whatever you have to do. And then eventually, God will send, or Mashiach will come. So that's Habakkuk's message. Good. Is he the first one to talk about Mashiach? No, 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 no. Actually, not at all. There are different visions of Mashiach and Aharika Yamin in Amos, somewhat, Ishayahu, certainly somewhat. All have different perspectives on it. For Amos, Yom Hashem, which is his term for Aharika Yamin, is a very day, it's a very bad day of darkness. It's all punishment to the Jewish people. As opposed to Yeshayahu's death, Amos. Yeshayahu has a very positive death of peace and harmony. We didn't look at Yeshayahu, we're going to get to Yeshayahu, hopefully t- we will get it today. So, each of these Nidhi'im have ideas, ideas and values that we want to absorb, integrate into our personalities, into our worldviews, and ultimately to implement in how we live life, and impact upon others. The very fact that, let's look at Yeshayahu just for a minute, if you look at the Tanakh, in the very second famous chapter, Yeshayahu in these brown and again, this is part of our, our religious heritage and cultural heritage that all of us should be aware of. If you look at chapter 2, page 846, 847, 847. Now, these are the words by Ishayahu Hazah <coughs> prophesied on Yudah and Yushalayim. What's wrong with that translation? No. On Yudah and Yushalayim. Something is bothering me terribly about that translation. What's bothering me terribly about it? Hazah is a vision. Excellent. Good. The word Hazah means to see. Why is it critically important to translate that word correctly? Because it tells you what a Navi is really all about. It's not that he prophesied about this vision. He spoke about it. He actually envisioned it. He saw it in his mind's eye. He used this wonderful gift that God has given us called the imagination. And it was a graphic vision. Not simply words that he spoke, but if he's a great speaker, he's able to paint a graphic picture so that this will become a live idea. Like he lived it. Like he lived it actually, exactly that. Well said. He lived this idea. And in this portrayal of it, you would say to him, well, where are you getting this from? He sees it. He's not, he sees it in his mind's eye. He sees it, a view of what we're talking about over here. So they it's a vision. In the same way that in chapter 1, you also have a vision. A vision of destruction. Tell us in chapter 1, you're all destroyed, devastated, you're wounded, you're hurt, you're afflicted. Now, there's three possible interpretations of that first chapter. One is that they actually were destroyed, devastated, and afflicted by an enemy, by an earthquake. Two is that he really saw them as such. 
He sees them and describes them graphically, though they're fine. If I were a great teacher, if I were a prophet over here, you all look very well and wonderful and healthy and happy and harmonious living in your lives. But I would devastate that image that you have by describing you all as forlorn, as afflicted, as sick, as everything I can think of. And describe it so graphically that you'd say, either he's crazy because I'm really feeling well, or I would mesmerize you into really seeing and sharing my vision so that you will ultimately do what? Fulfill it and change. Change is the key word. Right. You want to fulfill my image and either fail and fulfill it or you want to change and avoid it. So he sees and describes chapter 1. They could have been very happy people. But he describes so graphically the term Chazon is used. Chazon Yishayel ben Amos. It's a vision that he sees and describes graphically so that they have to absorb the message. So too in chapter 2. So over here, he's going to describe graphically to them. In the end of days, well established shall be the house of God on the top of the mountains. And it will be lifted up from all the mountains. And people shall stream. Interesting word in the Haru, stream. Because in English we use the word to stream. Right? We know what it means. In Hebrew it works the same way. Rare are those words that both can be used to mean to a metaphor, to metaphor. Obviously, it's a river, but we use the river as a metaphor. Correct? A good prophet knows how to use metaphors, similes, anonymous, alliteration, assonance. Of course, assonance. Similar sounding syllables. Sounds. Similar sounding syllables. Every now they use this because that's how you impact. That's how you graphically describe an image with all these poetic techniques. They're extraordinary writers because they know how to use these poetic techniques. Not to show it to you right now. But here, they shall stream. Now, if I said to you, people will come to the sanctuary, to Shul and Yom Kippur, you have an image. They come. If I say people are thronging there, you have another image. If I say people are streaming in a tidal wave, you have another image. So he used, of course, the tidal wave image. So it works in Hebrew. Naharu, the word Nahar means river. People are rivering there. Streaming there. So it works in Hebrew and it works in English. It's very rare for a word to be a good metaphor in two different languages. But here it happens to work. <coughs> good, excuse me. So he goes through this whole entire vision, which of course is culminate, culminated <coughs> in his statement over here, in verse 4, verse 5. <coughs> They shall be thank you. It culminates they shall <coughs> beat their swords into pruning hooks, their spears into their spears <coughs> no, their plowshares and spears, and nobody shall lift up a sword to anybody else. They should not teach any longer warfare. So here you have a vision of universal peace, which is on the UN Plaza. Right? So we want to be aware of that. So here's an extraordinarily powerful, impactful statement that the UN had read and said, you know something? This is so important, put it on the UN Plaza. Give me any other example of, of this type of thing. What does it say? Okay, good. That's Yishayahu, I think. Uh, correctly. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Freedom shall ring out from the land. Bechukotai. Baikai Bechukotai. 
So these biblical phrases are so powerful that American culture has assimilated them, has used them. That's only freedom is in the book of time. Ukratem deroa freedom the holy sphere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, correct. That's what you're there. So that's there. So many of these biblical statements have been impacted, have impacted upon American culture and civilization. The whole world. Sorry. Yeah, you wanted the whole world. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's a verse from Isaiah, from Isaiah, that impacts in that particular fashion. What's also interesting about Yeshayahu in chapter five. Another interesting idea that we have said to be so important that we put into our Yom Kippur prayer book. The end of five. This is not review. This is not review. This is all We finished. The man is right. The man's okay. Where's that pasuk in chapter five? One second. Chapter 5, Yeshayahu. Yeah. Okay. What's the end? I'm not used to this. Um, one second. What do you want to cut in? You want a corner? It'll be easier if it's okay. No, no, it's okay. Don't bother. Okay. So it's the end of the chapter. Should be verse 3 or 5. 3. Which you all know the base of your last. 16. 16, is it? Yeah. Five. Yeah. Okay, there. Okay. Right. So it's six. Five, sixteen. Right. So now this is such an important pasuk. Thank you. Such an important pasuk over here that we put it into the Yom Kippur prayer book. You all know it. But God is elevated. God Almighty. God All Powerful is elevated by justice, and God who is holy. Now, Nikdash Bistaka. What does Nikdash Bistaka mean? Nikdash. He is sanctified by acts of righteousness. <coughs> well, look at look at the pasuk in the Hebrew. Vayigba Hashem said, "What God, who is all the Creator of all, Vayigba is elevated by justice, and God, who is holy, Nikdash is sanctified or made holier, perhaps, by righteousness." Right. Now here we have parallel mishpat utzaka, which are key terms, key terms in our in our Tanakh. Mishpat utzaka, justice and righteousness. So God, who is holy, is made is made more holy by acts of righteousness. Look how extraordinary that statement is. By So important. Put in Yom Kippur sidur. So we find throughout. Our Tanakh repeatedly ideas, ideals, and values that we have to utilize. Here it's justice and righteousness. Here it's what we could do. Our acts of just and righteous are further sanctifying God's name called Kiddush Hashem. 
justice and righteous is what you want to do on a daily basis because how you conduct your business with individuals, with companies, is going to be a fulfillment or a desecration of this particular verse. Right? So Yeshayahu is an incredible personality of somebody who's able to articulate in a very poetic, powerful phrases these issues. Look at chapter 57 of Yeshayahu. And this comes up all the time. On Yom Kippur, you're obligated to fill in the blank. Fast. Good. Now, does Hashem really care about your fast or not? If we look towards the end of 57, right? 57 begins, 57 begins this is on page 980. The Hatarah of Yom Kippur begins in chapter 57. Right? And then we go into 58. Right? And we want to look at 58. And look at verse 3. The people are complaining. It's Yom Kippur. Lama Tzamlu, we have fasted, you have not seen it. Ainin, we have afflicted our souls. Don't you know about it, God? So now Hashem answers. Hen bi Yom Shomichem. One second, God says. On the very day that you're fasting, what are you doing? You're doing business. Right. Not only that, you are taking your workers and you are oppressing them. So you're fasting, you're going through the ritual motions, but you're missing the entire point of the day. Now one second, he says, God says to them, you are fasting, it's true, but your fast bring about arguments and disputations. And further than that, you bang up other people with your fists of evil. Don't fast like this. Don't call out your voices to the heavens. Is this the kind of fast that I want to choose? A day where it's supposed to afflict your soul? No, you know what it's really all about? You call this fast, look at verse, end of verse 5. No, verse 6. The kind of fasting that I want, Open up the chains of evil. Untie the bonds, the yokes. And send free those people who are oppressed. And untie, before more time, untie every single moth. Moth which you carry on your necks. If you see somebody who is hungry, what should you do? Feed him. Feed him. Somebody who is downtrodden, bring him to your house. You see a naked person, clothe him. And don't hide your face. What's he saying? What is he setting up over here? Ritual versus ethical. They were engaged very righteously in the ritual acts of celebrating, commemorating Yom Kippur. They said to God, don't you see how good we are? We're all fasting. We're flipping our souls. Don't you see why you're questioning all this? So Hashem says, you think I want you to fast as you afflict your workers? As you allow a naked person to go unclothed? As you allow a hungry person to be left unfed? Is that what you think I want? They did. They did. Interestingly, what we have over here is, one might say, a comment of contemporary religious life. In that, you have, often enough, the extreme left reform movement lives in ethical monotheism. They're very much involved in ethics. They are. That's all Judaism to them. No ritual. No kashrut. No tefillin. No yarmulkes. No... Right. Exactly. And the extreme right 
The streamliners have been criticized for being only concerned about their $200 etrogenulav and their $1,000 tefillin and their $2,000 strimals. And they've been criticized for that as well. Stream right, and yet they'll bowl you over in the streets. There's a holy and now attitude towards their fellow man. They're not always honest in business. That's all, those are all hasty generalizations. But that's what they've been spoken about. You've read, the, you've read the papers, how people from different communities, whether it's Muncie, whether it's Monroe, whether it's Williamsburg, cheating on various government programs. you read about those. But they say it's okay to cheat the government because they're not a Jewish government. So that divorce from ethics to ritual is really both perverting Judaism, the extreme right and the extreme left. And if it was only the mind of Orthodox, we got it straight. Sorry, sorry for that. Uh, which is an inter- integration of both ethics and ritual. Torah's. No. Getting a lot of trouble for that. Torah's vision is that it's a perfect, harmonious balance where ethics and ritual integrate integrate in order to produce the kind of personality that Mark Twain spoke about in Proposition 1 of the other article, of his article in the other class. Wait one second. Do we see that? That if you are ritually, behaviorally trained to give a person, okay, to do Tiffany every single day, that you should also be behaviorally ritually trained to give a poor person his bread. Because it's easy to ritualize a person. It's much harder for us to become ethically pure. So Torah uses this kind of system of integration of ritual and ethics. Ish imor v'yutzirahu. Respect your parents. Torah is based on the fact that if you have trained a child ritually properly, he's going to be ethically pure as well. Ethically holy as well. As a result. As a result. Yeah. Well, they integrated well. Because you're trained to do that. You're not going to murder somebody when you keep Shabbat or put clean every single day. One has an impact on the other. Question. So that's one purpose. Question. Daniel. Um, here when they're talking about the, the fast, like, so that means that if you're not, if you go about, like, let's say, Tani just there. You know, I know that they're not talking about that. It's Kippur, right. Mm-hmm. You, that means that if you just fast, you're not completing the obligation. Is that what Absolutely that? correct. You have to, like, learn and... and no, no, in t- terms of his issue over here is that if you're only fasting and you're still engaged in acts of oppression or evil or business, you're just going through the religious ritual motions, which is not appropriate. So, yeah. You must be concerned about the poor person. Is the righteous at the same time? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly that. The righteousness, the ethics, integrated well with the ritual act. If you go through Yom Kippur, and you fast the whole entire day, and you really went through, and you looked at your shows, and you didn't learn what it's really all about, which is worrying about that poor person down the street, your fasting means nothing to God. That's what he's saying over here. It's a very powerful statement, which is why we don't Yom Kippur. David. What you just described about the right wing uh, yeah, that was goes back to something that you asked earlier on, on the kind of impact that we're having on our neighbors. Will they stand behind us right. in, in times of need? Mm-hmm. And I think because the Hasidim and the, the right wing Jews are more graphically Jews, yeah. more obviously mm-hmm. Jews, visibly Jews, that the American uh, middle, you know, the average American will probably think. Of when, when it's time to think about the Jews, they'll think of those guys that get written up in the papers 
as the Muncie guys who cheated and the rabbi who got tried for killing his wife and that was a hitman. Right. Yeah, but they won't. But the average American won't make that distinction. They'll That's just perhaps they'll just some see some the guy, the negative the average American. paper. So, so we what do we do? You know, we have to. Do we start wearing kippahs? I mean, you know, is that the answer? I would say that's part of the answer. No, I think that's definitely part of the answer. I think if they live your life yeah. in a certain fashion, which is going to bring holiness to the Jew to God's name, which means how you act, where you shop, what you do, how you treat people, in every which way, from the baker to the uh, gasoline attendant, how you how you sit in the library, say, respectfully uh, in it. So when you do that, and, you, and in fact you you do that appropriately, and you wear the yarmulke, and we want them to say that this is a very special people. How we conduct ourselves. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. We go very far away. But there's so many different messages. Uh, how many, you know, we're trying to make an impact, but we, we didn't impact ourselves. That's another problem we have, correct. So, we have that impact on ourselves. We're talking about just us here, let's say. Just the, yeah. you know, 15 people that are here. Right. Yeah, no, you want to, you want to absorb these ideas, ideas and values, and then you want to conduct yourself in a certain fashion. But if nobody, knows, if nobody knows you're a Jew, then, then it would be lost. Yeah. It's good, but it would, would then be lost. But imagine it's that other model. Question. Imagine your model. It's a great model. Imagine if, that, if you conduct yourself in a certain kind of a way, and then somebody sees a yarmulke, and they end the book away saying, that's a good person. He helped an old lady across the street. He gave charity. All those kinds of acts of goodness go a long way to affecting upon the person. But you have to identify yourself as a Jew. That's right? exactly right. Correct. Good. Okay, now I'm going to... We look at Yeshayahu. I want to show you one more verse in... Two more verses. One in Yerimiyahu. Because I want you to get a feel and a flavor of all the Nevi'im. Then we've completed the Nevi'im. Yerimiyahu we haven't seen yet. And there's a lot more to say about every single thing that I'm saying over here, obviously. That goes without saying. Look at Yerimiyahu chapter 9. Chapter 9. And it's verse over here, 11. And, uh, one second, I'll go a little further than that. Verse 11, 12. I want you to focus on um, 22. Verse 22. 1032. 1032. 1032. Yes. Okay, now, what's this about? What is he telling us over here? Let's just translate it. Do not praise yourself about your great wisdom. Do not praise yourself about your great strength. Do not praise yourself about your great wealth. This is not important. Rather, he tells us over here, but rather in this you shall praise yourself. Be wise and come to know me. Because I am God who does kindness, justice, and righteousness in the land, because this is what I really care about, says God. What's he talking about over here? What does God really care about? Right, exactly. Good. So here he's setting up for you what the values of your society should be about. Should it be about wealth? Should it be about strength? Should it be about 
wisdom. Should I care that my kid goes to Harvard, or should I care that my and, and cuts his or her way to get there, or should I care my kid's a kind, good person? Which practically means that it's Sunday afternoon, and should she go ahead and study for the test to get her to Harvard, or should she go to the nursing home and help an old person? Maybe both on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> Not always are as superhuman as you are. I mean, that's a, you can do a lot of things at once. I know you do that. Pack, ship, and sell, and buy, and everything else little one person. Most of us humans can't do that. So this, statement, this statement pretty much says, go do exactly. the people in the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like the reform have it right. Except they're failing at it. They're, but why are they failing at it? Because at the end of the day, they're not remaining reformed Jews. They're remaining inter-American Christians. It's through devotion that you get the kindness, the justice, and the... Effort. Absolutely. That's so correct. Why? Devotion. Why? why are they... Well, let's get back to them in just a few minutes. But let's first understand, what does he want from us over here? What are the values that you should have? What's really important in life? skill, knowledge, understanding. Ultimately, God wants from you to know God so well that what does God really want? Now, it's an extraordinary pasuk. Where does it reverberate? In Morena Bukhim, the very last chapter of the Rambam in Morena Bukhim is this, this idea. The last chapter, Morena Bukhim, the Rambam, the greatest intellectual of Jewish history, is saying to you, this is what you really have to do. If you have to be motivated by kindness and consideration and just and right and all that, why? Because you're emulating God. That's what it says. It's an amazing pasuk. Yemayah was telling these people over here that they were self-praising because of their offshore, <coughs> their great wealth. Now think about what motivates our Syrian community. Offshore. Offshore. In one context. Now other communities might be motivated not by offshore, but it might be by Chokhmah. When you live in Boston, let's say. We lived in Boston for seven years. And we taught at Maimonides, which is a superstar school. What value do you think they... Celebrated. Education. Harvard. Education. Sure. Harvard. Every kid wanted to get into Harvard, and most did from that school. We had to teach kids, this is true, not to study. Please don't go home and study. Do something else. Extracurricular. Do a haircut. Do kindness. Don't go home and study. We had to, every kid, day and night, 24-7, winter, summers, spring, fall, they're studying. Harvard's right next door. It's right next door to us. We all took our kids to visit Harvard Yard. <laughs> Every Sunday. Everybody did it. That's what you had to do. I'm exaggerating slightly. Because that is such a powerful... MIT is across the river. Right? And the, the notion is that after finals, if you drag the Charles River, you'll find a lot of bodies. <laughs> Those kids who were there didn't make it through. I mean, we all... That's, that's, that's the culture over there. That's the chokhmah that they want. As opposed to that, Jewish community which celebrated not wealth, it were the PhDs from Harvard and MIT and places like that. Those are the celebrated people on the, on the Board of Education, for example. It was, it was laughable. I come to deal and I say, who's at the Board of Education here? All businessmen who know anything about education. That's true. It's, like, it's silly. As opposed to, in Maimonides, it's the PhDs in education, in, in, in philosophy, in history, and whatever it may be, who make the educational decisions, not the businessmen. We tell them, businessmen, go raise the budget. Talk. Shh, don't talk. You can't talk. Go raise the money. So what do you have to do in minorities? That was their role. They, they did a great job. Their role was to raise money, did and the educators had to educate. So it worked out well. And it was kind of reversed in yeah. India where they told us, 
Keep quiet. We don't care what you have to say about education. We make the money. We make the money. That's the answer. So, Yirmiyahu here is setting out the values of society and saying very clearly that it's not wisdom, it's not the PhDs from Harvard, it's not the Gevura, it's not the Osher, not the wealth, rather self-praise. It's a Hippayel form. If you know God, you know that God wants for you to do Hesed Vishpatsaka. Those are the key words of the entire Bible. Right, so that's Yirmiyahu. Now again, there's much more in Yirmiyahu that we have time for. Much more. But we want to close out the Navi, yeah? No more. I did not, but you're being kind to me tonight. No, I appreciate that. One last point. Now, Melachim Bet also just an idea, idea or value. I want you to look at this, Melachim Bet, chapter 14, and tell me, this is really takes a very sharp eye, and tell me exactly what is it that the Navi in Melachim Bet, chapter 14, wants of us. Read for a moment, page Twenty more seconds. You should read as fast as I speak. We have a problem with this. <laughs> what are they telling me over here? It's an extraordinarily important idea. Ideas, ideals, and values that you're looking for. You saw the values of Yirmiyahu. You saw Yeshayahu to the Kalmishpat. Yeshayahu in chapter 5. David. Take a step. God, God didn't hold uh, the king's actions against the people. The king was wicked, but he didn't destroy the people because of the king's actions. Good. Not Certainly sure. not. Exactly. Good enough. Okay. Stick to your day job. I guess he uh, restored the territory, but he did... He, he didn't do what was pleasing in the... That's correct. He was evil. He was absolutely evil. Yeah. He's evil. He's evil. Interesting so, issue. You have, to, you have to change your ways. He didn't depart. Didn't do it at all. But what's the key point? What's the key idea over here? Because Israel took him. No. He was that also, but doesn't bother God. Yeah? So even though he, he did like what he was supposed to do in extending the land, yeah. so he didn't hold the, the right um, ethics, and therefore he didn't, do, he didn't please God that That's way. absolutely correct. But there's an idea that I want you to extrapolate from over here that applies incredibly well to contemporary events. Territory. Territory is important. Very important. Not good enough. I'll tell you right now. What's the value? You know, Amashini, who reigned from 785-745, reigned for a long, long period of time, was extraordinarily powerful. He only gets six verses in the Navi. We know more about him from extra-biblical sources than we do from biblical sources. The pagan nations surrounding Israel were petrified of the power of this king, who was, who was famous in his time as Solomon was in his time. Right? Amazing story over here. He did, however, evil in the eyes of God, therefore we don't give him much space over here. We only give him six verses. Right? He didn't deviate from the sins of Yerubam ben Nevat, the 200 years earlier, who caused Israel to sin. 
Now what did this king do to verse 25? He brought back the boundaries of Israel from Hamad to the Yam to the western coast as God had promised. Now here's the reason, those of you who don't know this, why did Yonah run away? This passage tells you why Jonah ran away. Can we figure it out? The sins of the people. Are you um, almost, but not exact. Why did Jonah run away? Sins, people, yes, more than that. God fulfills his promise no matter what? No. What happens? What happens? Okay, you see that? Hold on to that for one second. He didn't want any of it to repent and, and because well, he knew the That's not what it is over here. He, he, he thought he could escape from God, no? No. That's what we tell you in fourth grade. Oh. <laughs> what is this telling you over here? You'll see it in one oh, second. Oh, the, oh, the king, the king was, was winning, he was conquering, but he wasn't taking care of the people. Excellent. No, more than that. The, the he's evil. Living. Forget he's evil. The king is evil and yet he's successful. Right. That does not work biblically. This is the opposite message. It's the wrong message. So your nine runs away. Why? Because what's happening, he says to God. God, I don't get it. I prophesy. I teach that goodness counts. Evil is punished. Heck, they aren't sure. You sin, you're punished. This man is evil to all degrees. And what's happened to him? He's successful beyond all measure the imagination. So what's the message? So wait, so what does that do to God's message? Does it make sense? He's a laughing stock, Yonah. He's the resident. He's the rabbi who gets up and says, be honest in business. And what happens to all the honest men? They're stopping along and they're barely paying the families. And, and the rabbi says, if you're corrupt, you'll be punished. God will allow. What happens to corrupt guy? He's a billionaire. So at a certain point, you make the message again and again. What happens? People say, that's it. You know what you're talking to. Your message is so off. The honest guy ends up on the bottom of the barrel and the corrupt individual ends up on the top. So what, how does one have a message there? There's no message. It all doesn't make sense at all. So now that's point number one. So therefore you're not says, you know something God? I'm going to end up going to Ninveh. And what's my message? You're going to be punished. What is going to happen to these people at the end of the day? Nothing. Exactly. They're going to do Teshuvah or something like that. They're going to repent. I'm going to be the last second again. I don't want to get involved in that any longer. It happened already. You know, Mom, I spoke, I, t- I talked, I preached, I did everything right, and every single thing that I said, you do exactly the reverse of it. I don't like this deal over here. I run away. I don't need the last second any longer. He, wants to, he tries to run away for that reason. Point number one. Now, point number two, which you want to know about, which is really key over here. Verse 26. Hashem sees that Israel is afflicted. Very, very bitter. They are now suffering in 785 before the coming year from the 100 year war with, uh, with, with Syria, with Adam, with Syria. So powerful. Evis Asur, Evis Azu. Israel's alone. There's none to help Israel. Nobody else is helping Israel. And what was going to happen at this point in time? They're erased from the scene. If you're of Am Hasheni, this set of Am person, Menyash, did not do what he did. What would happen to the Jewish people? What is the Pastor say? Verse 27. God never said that Israel's name shall be erased from under the heavens. What would have happened to the Jewish people if, if Yerubam did not? They would have disappeared. It was that miserable. Complete mass demoralization. A hundred year war. As you're losing and losing and losing. If not for Yerubam, this evil king, then what would have happened? Israel would have been erased. Therefore, this is Bible to Ta'am. Therefore, by Yoshan, therefore he helped them by Yerub'am ben Yoash. Therefore he helped them. 
Had he not helped them by Ram ben Yoash, what would have happened to the Jewish people? They would have erased. Isn't this strange? What did he find problematic over here? Why didn't he help them? Why didn't he help them? Right. Well, there was none around. So what do I do now? God says. Read the pasuk. What's the pasuk saying? Yeah. What do you mean there's none around? My the cause I'm dealt with right now is Yerovam ben Yoash. What do I do now? If I don't bring military victories, if I don't help this king, though evil, to achieve victory at this point, what's going to happen to Jewish people? They'll lose the bigger picture. They'll be erased. Therefore, by Yoshian. Now, Amasya. Amasya. Yeah, it was good. So why didn't he do it through Amasya? It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm just reading the verses. Read the, read the Pesukim. Yeah, but the philosophy behind it doesn't work. Because it, what, idea, do first, what idea is this teaching me over here? That the bigger picture is the survival of the Jewish people. And at certain times, whatever the dynamics, the theological and historical dynamics were at that period of time, God saw a need to save the Jewish people at that point by this king. I can answer your question in a minute, but right now I'll get this point across. Do you see what ideas emerging over here? Contemporary analogy. And this is this is not my idea. This is Rabbi Salavechik's idea. Rabbi Aaron Salavechik hasn't expressed this idea. It's not mine. It's his. He had read the text very carefully. He said what I'm saying right now. So it's not mine at all. It's a brilliant idea. His brilliant idea. Ben Gurion was a heretic. Ben Gurion was an atheist. In one particular account, Ben Gurion wished his children were intermarriage. That's one account that I had read. And yet. What happens over here? By Yoshian Biyad Ben Gurion. God saved the Jewish people. What was prior to Ben Gurion? What massive event called the Holocaust. Holocaust? What was the psychological state of affairs of the Jews at that point in time? Complete mass demoralization. Imagine a Jew, if you one third of Jewish people are slaughtered, nobody helps. To the contrary, the St. Louis sails across and could have saved. 5,000 people, they'll sail back to the ovens. Who wants to be a Jew at that point of time? Who can imagine wanting to continue as a Jew at that time? And that was the fate of Jews, and this, this is the civilized 20th century. The mass demoralization. Were the Jews on the road to Mehiyat Shemam, to have their name erased completely? Absolutely. The more power the Hitler got, the more the Jews would have been destroyed. Including Halab, including Syria. Rommel was on his way to Syria. 1942, I think it was, or 43. Albert Sassen, sure, remembers when they had a mass decree of fasting because Rommel, in three more days' march, was going to be in Syria and wipe out all the Jews that were in Syria in 1940. There were 40,000 Jews in Syria at that point in time. Would have destroyed Rommel. What would have happened? And it recalls his Christian neighbor telling his mother, I'll take your children. I'll take your children. If they come here, I will raise them as Christians, was the question that was his mother had to deal with. Ambassador has tell the story. Unbelievable. So that was Mehiyat Shem Yisrael after the war. So what happens next? Now we have the state of Israel that comes along, and you have a Ben Gurion, he's a heretic and everything else that you want to say, and yet at the end, by Yoshian, God saves his people with the state of Israel with... Ben Gurion. Rabbi Salvechik's point is over here that this idea is that sometimes in history, with the interaction between the divine and the human, whatever reason Amatiyah 
did not work out at that point in time, 20 years earlier, this point in time now, where faith, God saves this situation, and therefore, by Yoshian, therefore he helped him with this evil king. Yeah, though he's evil. And even though the message that gets across is a bad message, what's the message over here? That evil sometimes pays. That's why you and I ran away. But on the other hand, what's happening over here is that the idea that God will use as a utensil, as a clea, somebody who, though he may be evil, God will use him in order to bring about salvation. So this, again, is a, a narrative from which we extrapolate an important idea of how God runs the world. Right, so, again, in all these books of Nevi'im, now we finish the books of Nevi'im. <coughs> That's a hard one for us to extrapolate into our lives. So. Mm-hmm. Is, there really, is that a model for it's, us? It's, it's an awareness that you should have that, therefore, if one sees the state of Israel today, one should not come to the wrong conclusion, right. which is that because Ben Gurion did it, it's not good. Which is what the right one says, unfortunately and sadly. Correct, whatever it may be. Yeah, the government, you could now, does it, yeah, the government is corrupt today, or yeah. whatever it is, not religious today, and therefore we should support the state of Israel. And that's a sad statement. That's not what you have to analyze it, because here we see exactly the opposite. Sometimes God will bring about a wonderfully righteous conclusion through the medium of an evil king, or evil prime minister, whatever the case may be. You have to know this book so well to be able to come to the right conclusions. They come to the wrong conclusions. That's a very careful reading. That's your reading, not mine. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to um, go right away into the source. Do you mind? Let's have a break. You need a break? I don't want a break. You want a break? Okay, get a break. Yeah, three minutes. Three minute break. I made all this.